Although class actions have been common in the United States for decades, they have not been as widely used in the rest of the world. The situation and risks remain in flux, however, as more countries have renewed momentum to enact class actions or class action-like procedures. Jones Day recently published the Class Actions Worldview Guide focusing on the United States and Europe. We are joined today by the authors of that guide, Jones Day partners Becky Kachowski and Ozana Kirik. Becky is a partner in Jones Day's business and tort litigation practice and is partner in charge and head of litigation for the firm's Pittsburgh office. Based in the firm's Paris office, Ozan is a partner in the firm's global disputes practice. He focuses on commercial litigation and international arbitration. Becky, Ozan, thanks for being here. Becky, just by a little bit of background, this is the first in a series of podcasts we're planning that will cover developments in class action law around the world. But before we talk about a couple specific jurisdictions, namely the U.S. and the EU, talk a little bit about some of the global trends we're seeing in the class action space here in mid-2023. Yeah, thanks for the question, Dave. Glad to be here with you all. So in 2014 or so, we started seeing jurisdictions outside the United States adopt various forms of class actions. And other than a few jurisdictions and a handful of issues, they didn't get a ton of traction outside mm -hmm. the U.S., at least when they were initially adopted. And the reason was many jurisdictions were concerned about adopting procedures that would incentivize the kind of proliferation of class actions that we have here in the United States. And so mm -hmm. the jurisdictions that were adopting these new procedures included limitations on plaintiffs or the types of subject matter that could be pursued as class action. So there was a lot of fanfare and flurry in that initial adoption, but ultimately many of those procedures stalled in practice, very limited in scope in terms of impact, claims pursued types of recoveries in most jurisdictions outside the United States. But consumer advocates really continue to push those issues and mm -hmm. tried very hard to get some level of parity in the claims that consumers in the U.S. and outside the U.S. are able to pursue. So seeing things on a global scale, global products issues, global privacy issues, but real disparities in what individuals in the U.S. were able to pursue versus outside of the United States. So over the past two years or so, a number of jurisdictions have been revisiting those initial adoptions of class action procedures, taking a fresh look at those issues. And we'll talk later in the podcast about the new EU directive here. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. now we're starting to see issues and claims with traction as class actions in the U.S. being pursued outside the United States, particularly privacy, products, liability issues with this new push towards allowing these types of claims to be pursued in jurisdictions other than just the United States. Interesting. Now, They've been talking about how we become a developing global economy for years, for decades, and obviously we're there now. Becky, are you surprised that other jurisdictions maybe took this long? I mean, we've got a very consumer-driven global economy. I'm wondering why maybe some other jurisdictions were behind the U.S. a little bit, because they're not always with everything in terms of laws and regs and regimes and so forth. I wonder why that was. There's been a tradition of more constrained or restrained recoveries that are available to plaintiffs in litigation outside of the United States. And when there's not an incentive in terms of the type of recovery that can be made 
-hmm. in a putative class action, there's not a lot of interest necessarily either among the lawyers or the litigants in pursuing those claims. The historical tradition of more constrained recoveries outside Mm -hmm. the United States is the reason why you didn't see the development like you did in the United States. Okay, makes sense. And segues perfectly into what I was going to ask goes on about it, because I was going to ask him, in terms of catching up other jurisdictions to the U.S. and so forth, talk about, if you can, the broad impact that might be felt by multinationals as more jurisdictions catch up with their class action policies. Where do you see this, big picture-wise, in non-U.S. jurisdictions, Hosan? Well, thanks, Dave. Multinational companies are clearly following these new developments with great interest because it does raise more risks for them, especially as claims brought in the U.S. could potentially be also brought elsewhere, for instance, in Europe, given that a same product or a service may harm in a similar way consumers that are based in the United States or elsewhere. In addition, the most recent developments on class actions really put the wheels into motion for consumer-friendly regimes of class actions, which will very likely arm Mm -hmm. claimants with a couple of new tools to obtain relief. In Europe, it really started in 2013, as Becky has just mentioned, when the EC, the European Commission, urged member states to implement national collective redress mechanism in addition to injunctive measures. And as a result of that, several member states decided to take actions, like Mm -hmm. France, for instance, in 2014, with the Loi Amont, which allowed class actions to be brought in consumer law. And this European initiative culminated with, with the adoption of the EU representative actions directive that Becky has just mentioned, which was adopted in December 2020. So from now on, all member states are required to provide for a representative action mechanism to protect consumer interests. So as a result of that, it's really crucial for multinational companies to take steps now to assess and also mitigate the risk of mass tort claims in a global perspective. Let's pick up on that point and talk more about that, if you will. What should companies know specifically about securing a team and mounting a defense in what's potentially a multi-jurisdictional or cross-border class action claim? Well, as you rightly pointed out, Dave, class action regimes in the United States are clearly more mature than in Europe. But you may also know that we at Jones Day have you know, extensive experience in defending large multinational companies against a broad range of class actions. But now, as mentioned, I mean, these, these companies are even more exposed to similar claims in, in Europe to those they have faced in the U.S. Under these circumstances, it's very important for our clients to benefit from our U.S. experience. Someone like Becky could bring a lot of her experience here together with, you know, with our international network of experienced uh, global dispute lawyers. We could help those clients to, uh, to face those class actions. From a strict procedural point of view, I know that Becky will will touch upon Rule 23, but from a strict procedural point of view, for instance, Rule 23 is in a way uh, similar to some requirements that are provided for in the Representative Action Directive. So, So again, here, our U.S. experience can definitely be helpful when assessing the admissibility 
of class action on the European soil. Okay, let's say, let's just say a, a company headquartered in Paris is hit first with a class action, Ozan, but it spreads across borders and so forth. How is a team assembled? Is there a kind of a team leader in the jurisdiction where it was originally filed? Or how, how does that work? I mean, putting together a team like that to defend on all fronts with the different jurisdictions and their regimes and their laws and the potential remedies and so forth, where do you even start if you're hit with a big class action suit that could cross borders? Well, it really depends if a case is a pure French domestic case, I would say, or a cross-border with cross-border implications, because clearly, if, for instance, it's a product that is being manufactured somewhere else, then we will need probably to get our experts from the country where the product has been manufactured to understand what really happened. If it's a French company being sued by French claimants, then we probably may not have to get in touch with our colleagues from the other side of the Atlantic. Although having said that, it's always interesting to have some informal conversation, even with our U.S. colleagues, despite the fact that the matter is just a French matter and not a cross-border dispute, simply because you always get nice ideas from the other side of the Atlantic who have been facing this type of claims for ages. So it's always interesting to get their thoughts about a dispute that we may face on the French soil. Sure, sure. And, and that kind of feedback and experience has got to be invaluable as you're representing. Let's go back to Becky for a moment. Becky, you and I, and Ozan, we talked about some of these issues recently in a different format. And this might be out of order a bit in terms of what we're going to talk about today. But you talked about third-party financing as a development to watch. Can you talk about class action financing in general and how third-party financing can change the game potentially? Yes, certainly. So third-party financing for class actions, it's permitted in some jurisdictions. It's not permitted in others. And when you look at this litigation financing industry just at a general level, it is hard to tell the exact size of the industry because there are very few jurisdictions that require the disclosure of litigation funding agreements. But we do have a couple of mm. data points that are worth thinking about because it does tend to lead to the proliferation of additional suits, additional class action litigation. So Australia, for example, has significant amounts of third-party funding for class actions. Third-party litigation funding largely started there in the mid-1990s. There's been various reforms on how that funding works over time within the Australian regime. But I saw a recent estimate that said that approximately 40% of the class actions that are being pursued in Australia right now are funded by third-party litigation funders. So that means that litigation is effectively being viewed as an investment with possible returns for those funders. And that has certainly led to and generated increased filings in Australia. In various other jurisdictions, there is more or less of this going on. So in the U.S., again, the statistics I read recently said an estimated $13 billion in assets under management that are going to third-party litigation funding. So definitely something that's considered to be, at this point, a multi-billion dollar industry globally. And again, it may not surprise you that the jurisdictions that have more active funding have more active class action litigation. And obviously, the real risk with third-party 
litigation funding is that it might generate frivolous or non-meritorious type claims mm -hmm. that are propelled by the hopes of some kind of major early settlement or funding that's coming back to those funders. So there's always a question of whether funder-driven claims or merits-driven claims right. and whether those two are equated and you've just got this risk of allowing third-party funders to use courtrooms as a trading desk effectively seeking investment returns and then incentivizing non-meritorious suits. So it's something that jurisdictions have to think about that they have to grapple with and we do talk about this some in the class action worldview guide that you described that is being published soon. And you mentioned Australia and I don't want to get too far off track here. But Jones Day does a lot of publications, white papers and commentaries and so forth. But we did a lot of commentaries out of Australia about regs and procedures in terms of third-party financing for class actions there in Australia. And you tell me, though, it's been around since the 90s, so they're still sorting that out? Or is this a, a trend that's going to spread across the globe? Or like you said, you got to be wary and, and wonder, trading desk, I love that. But where do you see it right now? Yeah, it is something that they continue to struggle with what the structure can look like in Australia and elsewhere as well. It is something that continues to be a trend. We see it more in the United States. We see more advertisements for litigation funders. We see more direct solicitations for litigation funders that are coming directly to my email inbox at work. and. We're just thinking about how that works in practice, what disclosures are necessary, who your client is, who your ethical obligations run to as a lawyer. All of those things are things that need to be considered and worked through in that context, whether it's in the individual lawyer and the individual representation or through something on a broader scale in regulation or other types of laws or rules that govern in a jurisdiction. Okay. Well, let's leave Australia and go to the other side of the planet, literally as far away as you can be, I think, back to the United States of America. Let's talk about the U.S. class action landscape, and let's go back to the beginning. Ozan mentioned Rule 23. Tell us what that is, in case some listeners aren't entirely clear. And if you can, talk about the requirements instated by Rules 23A and 24B. What's all that about? Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23, that is the U.S. procedural rule that sets out the framework for a representative plaintiff to be able to pursue a piece of litigation as a class action. And plaintiffs do have to meet the standards set out in Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23 in order to litigate a case as a class action in a U.S. federal court. States have their own rules in state court in the United States, but Rule 23 is the rule for pursuing those claims in, in federal court. And we've had some form of class action procedures in the United States since 1938, but this modern rule as set out in Rule 23 was adopted in an earlier form in 1966. So at this point, we've now got more than 55 years of class action jurisprudence here in the United States, and it is a well-developed regime based on Rule 23 at this point. And as to your second question on what exactly are the procedures here that are implemented by Rule A and B under Rule 23, so there's basically these two 
primary sections of the rule with specific elements that are to be met for a lawsuit to be authorized as a class action. So first under rule 23A, you've got four requirements that have got to be met to pursue a claim as a class action in federal court. They're numerosity, commonality, typicality, and adequacy. So that means that the class has to be so numerous that joining all plaintiffs would be impractical, that there's at least one common question of fact or law across the class. The plaintiff's claims have got to be typical of the class and not subject to any unique facts or defenses. And then fourth, the the plaintiff must fairly and adequately represent the interests of the class, again, being capable, willing, and that also considers the lawyers that are at issue there as well. So those are the 23A requirements. The Rule 23B requirements, there are three separate categories. The most prominent and most frequently used is actions that are Rule 23B3. Those are damages class actions. For a Rule 23B3 damages class action, there are two additional specific requirements in the rule. Those are that the common issues must predominate over the individual ones and that the class must be a superior method for adjudicating the dispute. So that's the predominance and superiority requirements. There are some other basic procedural requirements, but those are the main ones in Rule 2023. Just a contrast to some of these global standards, for the U.S. Rule 23, there's no limitation on subject matter or the types of claims that can be brought as class action, no limitation on who can bring those claims, If you meet those Rule 23 requirements, you're going to be able to pursue a claim as a class action. So that's a distinction of that rule as compared to some of these global jurisdictions and how they are structuring their rules for class uh, cases. Now, that's interesting because I was getting ready to ask you if other jurisdictions have used U.S. Rule 23 sort of a template, but it sounds like they're more narrow, perhaps, in scope, or at least more limiting than maybe what's been established here since 1966. Or am I overstating that? Well, I think it depends on the jurisdiction. So certainly, I would say in the regimes that have been adopted in Europe, countries in Europe, they have been more limited. There are pieces, though, for example, the rules in Australia that are broader. They don't have a predominance requirement, for example, to pursue a damages class action. So it really is a jurisdiction by jurisdiction assessment, but some pieces of these concepts and rules do show up in other jurisdictions as well. Okay. Okay. Well, let's stay with the U.S. for a couple more minutes. Any trends you know, Specky? And again, you and I talked a week or two ago, so I'm tipping my hand, you told me. But I'd like to hear what you think about the landscape right now in the U.S. and where things are headed and what maybe a listener might want to be aware of. Yeah, it's a good question, at least for me, one that I find really interesting because class action law in the United States is always developing. There's always some new trend or issue. I'd say right now, cybersecurity slash data breach and data privacy litigation really does continue Mm -hmm. to top the charts in terms of the numbers of class actions that are being filed against companies that are operating in the United States. So if a company experiences a data breach, it's at this point nearly inevitable that a putative class action litigation is going to follow really big issues in that data breach space continue to be the questions of 
what is necessary for standing or injury, what impact is sufficient on a claimed uh, putative class action plaintiff to meet constitutional minimums to be able to pursue those claims. Mm -hmm. The threat of some future potential risks is, is not going to be enough. But where that balance gets struck is and continues to be a big issue in those types of cybersecurity and data breach cases. But I also wanted to mention now we're also seeing an absolute explosion of data privacy lawsuits that are not breach suits, but some similar types of claims focused on websites, mobile app operators, and the various third-party tools like marketing, tracking technologies, and other types of tools that are being used on those websites. And we are seeing hundreds of lawsuits being filed by consumers that are claiming that digital information about them was shared without their consent, without their knowledge, without their permission, and they're bringing a variety of different common law and statutory privacy claims. They've been dubbed website wiretapping claims because they're mm -hmm. building off of wiretapping statutes that were originally created for tapping phone lines and dealing with those types of issues. But again, hundreds of these website wiretapping claims have been filed, particularly in the Third Circuit and the Ninth Circuit after you had two pretty influential decisions come out in those circuits last year on this space. So not insignificant risk to website and app operators, although we can talk about this potentially some too. There are some simple things that can be done to mitigate those risks, but those are some key trends that I'm seeing. Becky, how do you even stay on top of this stuff? Cybersecurity, data breach, all this stuff, this is evolving so quickly. Case law and regs are trying to stay up. Then you have this layer of class action law over it. This is complicated, even with a firm like Jones Day, 2,500 lawyers, 40 offices around the world and so forth. This is a lot to manage and know and represent. How do you possibly put a package together and ensure that a client is being represented appropriately? What do you do? All fair points. We are absolutely actively litigating in these spaces and in the process of doing that, you're looking at the issues, evaluating the issues, dealing with the issues, assessing them with, with their clients and managing them that way. We have phenomenal teams here at Jones Day that have lawyers that are deep in these issues, advising clients on these issues before, during, after breaches, preparing to mitigate, figuring out how to assess these risks managing them and then dealing with the litigation if and when it gets filed. So great teams of people that have a great base of knowledge and when these pieces of litigation or other issues come in, we coordinate and deliver the best client service that we can leveraging the knowledge and experience of those teams. So you're right, it's a lot to keep up with. You're right, there are a lot of aspects to it, but that's really where some of our strengths come in because we are able to leverage the experience of those 2,500 lawyers across the globe as needed for our clients that are facing these issues. Sure, sure. It seems like a good time to bring Ozon back in. Ozon, anything you'd add to that in terms of the complexity of these types of issues and, and having a team that can address these things from a cyber perspective, a class action perspective, general business litigation? I mean, how do you coordinate a team and make sure clients best represented on that we've been following the class actions the de developments around the globe for almost for more mm -hmm. than 10 years so we do have 
several points of contacts in in, uh, in several jurisdictions so whenever whenever there is a new trend or or a new law somewhere on the globe, we immediately informed by our colleagues. And that is really our strength at John's Day because we have such a global network. It's very easy to get the info and to share it through publications to the client. Sure, and I think the benefit to a client is very obvious there. Ozan, let's talk about what was probably the biggest development in class action law in the EU in years. That was the approval by the European Parliament of EU 2020-18-28, the Class Action Directive. Now that entered into force on Christmas Eve, I believe, 2020. Member states were given about two years to incorporate, which brings us to about right now. What's the latest on that directive and what are the changes it will bring about? Well, that's correct, Dave. Member states were, I'll I'll do the math (laughs) for you, member states were, were, were required to to incorporate the directive into their national law by December 2022. In January 2023, the EC, the European Commission, pointed out that a large number of member states have failed to meet the deadlines. And this is the reason why the European Commission decided to send some letters of formal notice. We're talking here of 24 member states out Mm -hmm. of 27. Since then, a few member states have transposed uh, the directive into their national law, but as we speak, less than 10 member states in total have done so. Croatia, Denmark, Greece, Hungary, Italy, the Netherlands. France, for example, is currently working on it as the French National Assembly passed the bill last March, uh, which is now awaiting approval from the French Senate. Regarding the UK, and because actually of the Brexit, The UK is not concerned by this directive, but we have begun to see an increasing number of class actions in the UK since a couple of US-based claimant firms have already entered the UK market. So that being stated, we should also note that the directive only sets out guidelines, a common legal framework, if you would prefer. So each member state retains the possibility to adjust those guidelines. And once the transposition process will be completed. It will be very interesting to observe the differences in the way member states will adopt those guidelines. In terms of scope, these guidelines covers fields such as product liability, data protection, JDPR, financial services, travel and tourism, energy, of course, telecommunications, Mm -hmm. environment, or healthcare. But it does not cover areas such as competition law or labor and employment law. In essence, all member states are now required to provide for a class action mechanism or in the context of the directive, a representative action mechanism covering these areas. And while most member states already had such a mechanism in place prior to the directive, others did not. For the former, the implementation of a directive means reforming their current representative action regime, although the impact of the directive is only minimal for some member states. I'm thinking here again of France or the Netherlands. So overall, I would say this is a very important Europe-wide harmonization, which will shape the future of national and cross-border consumer litigation. And it's definitely designed to facilitate 
the exercise of representative actions. The aim being here to protect more effectively the collective interests of consumers. So as a result, I would say Europe may be seen as an emerging market for class actions in consumer law in the month or years to come, especially as we know that the EU is one of the largest markets in the world. Sure. Ozan, talk about right now, though, any significant procedural requirements in U.S. class action law that might be a bit different than maybe the U.S. model? What do litigants need to know about? Well, actually, I'd like to spend a few minutes on the third-party funding because this is where the directive is a bit remarkable on this topic because it's one of the first legislation to actually address the issues raised by third-party funding. And, you know, this type of funding is generally permitted in the U.S., but uh, most of European countries had no rules on this prior to the directive. It was neither allowed nor prohibited, but this will change with the implementation of the directive, which actually allows third-party funding as long as conflicts of interests mm. are prevented and as long as it does not divert the action away from the protection of the collective interests of, of consumers. So the directive here covers situations where the third-party provider has an economic interest in bringing an action or its outcome. For instance, when the third-party provider is a competitor of the defendant. Ah, uh, sure. Another significant provision of the directive or characteristic of the directive is the creation of cross-border actions at the EU level. Let me be more explicit here because an action is considered cross-border when a qualified entity, what we mean by qualified entity is actually an organization or public body representing consumers' interest, which has been you know, designated as qualified to bring a representative actions. So when that type of qualified entity brings an action in a member state other than that in which it is designated. And here we talked about the impact of class action legislations on multinational companies. So this innovation clearly represents a risk for such companies operating in several member states since they could be exposed to domestic actions, but not only, because they can also be exposed to cross-border actions, and qualified entities can actually join their forces within a single action and before a single forum. So I should also mention that the directive also allows qualified entities to seek uh, redress measures in addition to injunctive measures, Prior to the directive, the EU law has only established mechanism allowing organization representing consumers' interests to seek injunctive measures, but did not uh, require member states to provide for redress measures. But as a result, eight member states did not have any mechanism for representative action for redress measures in place at the time the directive was adopted. Therefore, the directive here enshrines for the first time the obligation for all member states to introduce into the national law a mechanism to allow qualified entities to seek injunctive and redress measures. So this is also worth to mention. Absolutely. When we push this program out, and so subscribers and, and people who find it online and so forth see it, the firm's done some publications on the directive. We'll make sure there are links to those. They can pick up on some of those points and certainly contact you with more questions. But great overview there. I'm going to go back to Becky for a second and talk about staying out of trouble. Let's talk about risk mitigation and reducing exposure. Now, Becky, every jurisdiction is going to differ, but are there certain policies or procedures 
I don't like best practices. It's beyond cliche. But are there certain procedures a company should have in place, wherever it might be located, to hopefully minimize the impact of a class action? How do you prepare? So you, you're right. Steps that companies can take to protect themselves in the context of class actions vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. They vary based on what type of industry mm-hmm. a company might be involved in, what their interactions with consumers and, and others that present putative class action risk might be. So understanding the rules, procedures, and processes in various jurisdictions is something that's important. But one thing that we do encourage companies to consider, at least here in the U.S., is the terms of their agreements with consumers if they are a consumer-facing business. There are protective liability limitations, other types of mitigating risk terms that can be built into those types of agreements. And one really important one in the United States is an arbitration clause with a class action waiver that can require individuals to pursue their claims on an individual basis in arbitration rather than in court, rather than on a class action or class-wide basis. So there are lots of efficiencies that are built into arbitration procedures, but it is a really effective way in the U.S. to mitigate risk and exposure to putative class actions It is an effective mitigating process in some other jurisdictions as well, but not everywhere. And it often will depend on the way those agreements are presented and potentially entered, particularly in the consumer context. But certainly something to think about, certainly something to revisit are what those consumer-facing agreements and disclosures look like for companies, uh, particularly in the United States. Becky, are there industries where that's more prevalent, financial services, for instance, pharma, where do you tend to see those sorts of agreements pop up in consumer arrangements? So certainly, as you described, financial, I talked earlier about digital data privacy, online web and mobile operators. So on online retail, digital retail, any type of service that's being delivered through an app or a website typically has an opportunity to have a consumer look at, consent to, and understand terms and conditions that can build in these types of arbitration clauses or other limitations of liability as well. Okay. Okay. The firm is releasing a very robust, broad, thorough publication a class actions overview, kind of a world guide to what's going on in class action jurisdictions around the world. Ozan, talk about that for a second, the updated edition and what a reader might learn from this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Well, perhaps I should say that in parallel with this audio podcast and, and, and video introduction, we are also releasing uh, publications on the latest developments in the most active jurisdictions on, on this specific mm-hmm. topic. You may have read our recent alerts on on France, on Australia, or or Italy. But that being said, the class actions overview is really built on the experience of Jones Day's litigators in 40 offices on five continents. And it is really a great opportunity to learn more about new developments and risks in class action procedures around the globe. And it covers also 13 countries 
in addition to the US and the EU. So it's more like a detailed academic tool, which was, to be honest, time-consuming to prepare. <laughs> but we really wanted, together with Becky and the others, we really wanted to go into the details of each national legislations so that the reader can see the common trends and the differences between them, but also be able to understand to assess and to mitigate the risks that we have discussed. So we really believe that this overview is the Bible of, of, of class action and, and should be on every lawyer's shelf. <laughs> you know what? And I've read the Bible a couple of times. I don't think the Bible was this intricate and involved and this thorough. So big heavy lift. Kudos to you, Ozan and Becky, you both. And I know this isn't the first go around. I'm sure there'll be another version or edition in a couple of years, but I, I think it's a a great continuing project and it's keeping our, our clients up to date and, and engaged and so forth. So thanks for all the work on that. And thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. You can find complete bios and contact information at jonesday.com. And while you're there, visit the Jones Day Insights page where you'll find more podcasts, publications, videos, blogs, and other interesting content. You can subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcast. Jones Day Talks is produced by Tom Condolis. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk with you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.